Okay, so once again, good evening, and uh, we're up to the, the sermon already. Um, our service was going to have some extra things that aren't, aren't happening, like the singing and the communion. But that's all right, we're moving along and we'll be finished by the time the official sort of six o'clock mark comes on, any rate. And I'm going to do a sermon. Uh, I should, I'll start off by saying, um, if you can get... Uh, the Bible text in front of you, that would be good. I'm sure you have your device with you, like your phone, tablet. And if you're watching at home too, uh, I imagine that most of our congregation are at home. And the sermon notes are found at uh, Jamboree Anglican Documents or Ang- Jamboree Anglican Docs. And they're in. They're, if you're here in the building, you've got them handed out with your, your newsletter. And if you're at home, you can go to Jamboree Anglican Documents and download them and see them there, because I'll refer to them as I go along and see where I'm up to in the sermon. And if you're not a regular in terms of attending this church building, but you regularly watch online, you're very welcome. We're glad to have you with with us. And again, the sermon notes are at Jamboree Anglican Documents. Uh, And my sermon is called, What is Fellowship? Question mark. And it's from Acts chapter 2. Well, uh, we had the, a long Bible passage read from Acts chapter 2 uh, by um, Annette, where what happened was uh, people were in Jerusalem. The uh, 12 apostles suddenly discovered that the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon them, that they were speaking in tongues and that they were preaching the gospel that crowds of people were gathering round and saying, what's going on? Will you please explain this for us so we know? And Peter preached the Pentecost Day sermon that Jesus was Lord and Christ and that Jesus was pouring out the Holy Spirit upon them. And then the response came, 3,000 people were baptised and as it says, they devoted themselves to four things. The apostles preaching... Uh, the prayers, the breaking of bread and the fellowship. So those four things. And we're going to look at those four things tonight in the sermon. So the actual kind of sermon text that we're focusing in on, having just looked at the whole um, Acts chapter 2 passage, just by way of a reading and so on. But it's Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. Uh, and I'm using the NIV, but other people have got the NIV coming up on their tablets or their hard copy of the Bible, which they've got on their lap, that sort of thing. So becoming and being a Christian is, of course, uh, a very personal thing and uh, something that if you're on a pilgrimage to find God, you must do this, you must become and you must be a Christian. And you need to become a Christian to find God. And there's a few expressions in the Bible to cover this, like becoming a Christian is like, Jesus says, it's like being born again. Or the Apostle Paul said, it's like having to die to the old way of life. So individuals become Christians. One by one, we become Christians. But this emphasis on the personal nature of faith The one-by-one aspect of it needs adding to, and it is added to in the Bible, because it's true that as people we long for the companionship of other people. 
And I think you've probably had the experience of suddenly waking up and feeling lonely or being in a spot where you're lonely. That's a terrible feeling to have. So I don't know anybody or I'm almost stuck here on my own or something. Being lonely, aloneness is a dreadful thing. And I reckon we can only experience what it means to be truly human as we live in the midst of other people. Not that we have to be crowded by other people all the time, but we can't live solitary lives and really know what it means to be human. And the Bible teaches this is true also. So right right at the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And then later on, it's not good for man to be alone, says God. And when it says not good for a man, it meant a human being, not just individual males, but a human beings. So in the sermon notes, uh, we start off with thinking about Tarzan and Robinson Crusoe. Uh, You know the story of Tarzan, I guess, and you know the story of Robinson Crusoe. First of all, uh, a boy was raised by apes of some kind in the jungle. This is the story of Tarzan and Robinson Crusoe. A man lived alone on a desert island where he was shipwrecked or something like that. He was marooned. I wonder which, which of those stories, Tarzan and Robinson Crusoe, do you find more believable? more resonating with human experience. Uh, And it's probably, most people would say, well, it seems like Robinson Crusoe is more believable. He was able to, this character, Robinson Crusoe, was able to live on a desert island and survive alone in complete loneliness uh, for quite a while because he brought with him memories of what life was like when he lived with other people across the other part of the world, back in human society, life with other men and women. Actually, uh, it turns out that Robinson Crusoe is based on a true story, that there was a guy who was forcibly marooned in those days, and his name was Alexander Selkirk, and they dumped him on an island and left him to there all by himself for a number of years till another ship happened to come by and rescue him. So the Robinson Crusoe story was based on something real. And and in the story he got Man Friday as a real-life companion anyway. But Tarzan is a somewhat unbelievable character. People always have fun when they're talking about Tarzan, this guy who swang through the, the vines in the jungle and so on. How can you turn out to be human if you're brought up by the apes? How was he able to relate to Jane, uh, human to human, when all he knew was life with apes? And we're most fully human when we associate with other human beings. And once again, the Bible is spot on. Uh, A a Bible quote that I've got, and if you wanted to look it up as I go along, you could do this. Romans chapter 14, verse 7, None of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. Our life is always set in the context of society and society is always depleted when one of its members dies. Uh, Which brings us to the main idea of this sermon, which is the idea of church uh, seen as fellowship. So in Acts chapter 2 and verse 41, Peter having preached about, received the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit being poured out on them, they spoke in tongues and so on and so on, and people said, what's going on? And preacher Peter gave him a sermon and said, well, it's actually Jesus is Lord and Christ pouring out the Holy Spirit upon us. You must repent and believe. It says in verse 40, 41, those who accepted his message were baptised and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And I'm reading from the, my NIV. You might be following in your New Living Translations. 
Now, we've been doing baptism and confirmation in our notices. There's a baptism service coming up, there's a confirmation service coming up, so we've been doing that. And uh, there were some comments Jody put about baptism and confirmation in the news sheet last week, and uh, again this week, and all about baptising babies and confirming teenagers and adults. Uh, but this Bible verse isn't about, that I just read out, isn't about baptising babies and confirming teenagers. But this bit of history here in our Bible passage is actually unique in history because it's the first gospel sermon preached after the death of Jesus and his resurrection and ascension to heaven and then from heaven he poured out the Holy Spirit upon them. So it was right at the very beginning of the Christian church. The first time the full gospel and its deep implications to repent and be baptised was clearly spelt out for the people. It isn't about Christian parents baptising their children here, but in those days everyone who heard Peter and repented and believed became a brand new Christian on that day. So I suspect there was, being 3,000, I I suspect, and it said they were all baptised, must have been a mass, mass baptism, all being dunked in the river or water being hurled all over the place, something like that. So Peter, Peter preached that Jesus was now Lord and the 3,000 repented uh, and, and then uh, I'll just read the, these few verses. Uh, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer. That's Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. I'm just going to read the next few verses but I'm going, we're going to focus in on that verse and the four things which they did. And then it goes on to say that everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. I hope you're able to follow in your, your hard copy Bible or in, in your device because you've got your Bible in front of you on your device. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as, as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and, and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Here we see uh, the inner life of of the first Christian church and what drove that first group of Christians. And we've got here, as, as I've said, in verse 42, four things that were marks of that church that were characteristics stood out. There was the apostolic teaching. You can see this if you look at your verse, which I I hope you're able to call up in your device. There was the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. So four things were going on there. We're going to take each of those in turn. I'll make a few comments about them, and that's what my sermons, that's how my sermon's structured. You can see on the sheet. So um, just to make sure uh, we're up to date, uh, this, uh, the notes which I'll be keeping, trying to keep my eye on too as we go along. Every now and then I get a bit worked up with my preaching and I forget to say, oh, fill in the notes, but keep, keep your notes in front of you, you'll see them, the things coming by. So first of all, we have the apostolic teaching. Verse 46, we see that the, temples, the Christians were meeting in the temple courts, that this was the focal point of their life together. They were going up to the temple as often as they could where there were a series of courtyards outside the main temple where the sacrifices took place inside the temple, but there were courtyards outside where people met. And the other people of Jerusalem became well aware of these regular meetings that the Christians were having. 
Now, just by the way, the people who were not believers in Jesus uh, probably saw this early group of Christians as a group within Judaism, a very zealous group of sort of funny kind of odd Jews who were kind of believing in Jesus. But anyway, they're not kind of quite like us anymore, but they saw them that. And the believers were not actually labelled as Christians until later on when the faith was spreading out in the Roman uh, world, the world of the, Romans, uh, the Roman Empire. That's when they sort of said, oh, let's call this group of people Christians. So when they first met in the temple courts, the apostles led the meetings and taught the believers, whom I'll call Christians for convenience, though, as I said, it happened later on. So what did the apostles teach the new Christians? Well, firstly, we can be sure that they taught them about the historical uh, Jesus. So in his Pentecost Day sermon, Peter said, this Jesus whom you crucified, this is on your notes if you've got a pen handy and you're following the sermon outline, whether at home or here in the building, this Jesus whom you crucified, God raised up. So the historical person, Jesus of Nazareth, was crucified and resurrected and now he was exalted to God's right hand, says Peter. And then secondly, and this is also on the sermon note outline, the apostles taught the Christians that Jesus of Nazareth was both the Lord and the Christ. He's both the Lord and the Christ. And the third item which was prominent in the teaching of the apostles, and you see this in that long sermon that Peter preached, when he referred a number of times, this is what was, being, was, was, was prophesied in the Old Testament and now being fulfilled. You can see this if you glance down the text. This was said by the prophet Joel and now it's coming to pass. It's true now. That how Jesus was the fulfilment, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament prophecy. So they, they taught that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament prophecy. And you can see that by looking at the Bible where the, Bible, the Old Testament gets quoted. Now, in his sermon, Peter has two fairly long quotes from the Old Testament. One was from the prophet Joel, as I just mentioned. The other one came from one of the Psalms. And these quotes show that the resurrection of Jesus and the giving of the Holy Spirit to all uh, Christian believers was exactly as prophesied. And also, the apostles would have been impressed by how Jesus always taught that all the Old Testament prophecies were concentrated on him. So, the apostles taught that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. Now, this means that the teaching of the apostles was the basis of the new Christian community, that this is what it was based on, not upon their own personal ideas, not upon just meeting together and having a nice time of sharing and saying, oh, this is cool, someone thinks this and someone thinks something else, and we'll sort of take the average and say that's what it is, but rather it was based on the apostles' teaching. A church is first and foremost a group of people who have responded to God through the preaching of the apostolic gospel because that's what the apostles preached. Jesus, crucified for your sins, resurrected to heaven, has now poured out the Holy Spirit. You must repent and believe. It was the apostolic gospel. Now in any church there will of course always be people present for various reasons. Some will be curious to find out more. And if people are watching online or they come along the building, we just want to find out more, that's wonderful. We're glad to have you amongst us. Some will be in the process of moving to true faith because not everybody arrives at true faith together. Some are in, I'm in the process of moving that way. I'm warming up to Jesus. Some come perhaps because of a particular need in their life. 
the funeral during the week where the person's tested, popped up and testified. We started going to our local church after a baby died in our family. We said, oh, let's go and see what Christianity is all about and they became Christians. So that happens. People come to church because of a particular need in their life. So therefore we ought to cultivate an open atmosphere in our churches so that newcomers feel welcome at all times wherever they might be up to in their relationship with God. But the activity in the energy of your church will concentrate on the believers because Christianity is a revealed religion. It's not basically what people think about God or how they encountered God or what sort of impression God made on them, on them uh, although all these things are very interesting to listen to, or what was the consensus after a good all-round discussion in some of these. Our faith is placed in something which God has revealed to us, not the other way around. It's from God, it's God's religion, it's the true religion. Because it's based on what God says to people, not on what God people think about God. And if you're aware of some famous Bible verses, you might be aware of the fact that the Apostle Paul explicitly labelled scripture as the word of God which God spoke and was then written down. So if we were to refer across to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, it says there that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. This is 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. So that the man of God, the person of God, if we sort of update the language, might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So he's saying there, scripture is like the very breath of God. And when you speak, your breath comes out. You can see this on a cold morning when someone's talking. You can see the steam coming out of their mouth while they're talking. It's the breath of God. God speaks scripture. So I've got a quote, and I'll just have a look at my sermon notes and see you're up to date. Uh, The the first from Timothy's on the sermon notes anyway. A quote from the 19th century American Bible scholar and teacher, B.B. Warfield, and this is on your sermon notes, is... What he said, what scripture says, God says. What scripture says, God says. And that's on our sermon notes. <clears throat> so someone wants, uh, over in a nearby church, having a big all-in-one meeting maybe, to think through what to do next to the church so things weren't going too well. And someone said, let's build some unity and then we can concentrate on some Bible teaching. But of course, unity is based on the Bible. Real Christian unity is agreeing on the faith and not building the unity independently of the Bible but building it on the Bible. Um, during this year, as we've been watching uh, the rugby league games, we've seen how, how much Brisbane are struggling, which is kind of fun if, if you don't support Brisbane, which, which I, I, I don't. And you see them struggling. And then uh, Kevin Walters, their coach, just said the other week, he was sort of struggled. They'd just been walloped by 50 points to six or something or other. And he said... Uh, if we can build some unity in the team, he says, then we might start winning, winning some games. But I thought he might have it the other way around. If they, if they could get the Broncos to start winning some games by concentrating on their football, then when the results come their way, they'll start to build some unity. And it's the same way with us as a church. When we focus on the apostolic gospel, the apostles' teaching, in other words, we, focus, we build unity on the Bible, we put the Bible first and the unity follows because it's based upon it. So that was the first point that we're doing this morning, uh, this evening, the apostolic teaching. And then the second uh, thing in here that they devoted themselves to in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. And notice it says the fellowship, which is correctly translated, not just 
fellowship like everyone said, ha ha, we had a lovely time, everyone talked and we, we felt all beautiful, but there's something, we devote ourselves to the fellowship and, and the word the is in there and it comes through in our translation. Now here's a, a little bit of Greek which is handy to, to know, just to sort of show off, you can say, I know some Greek. Uh, the word for fellowship is the word koinonia in Greek and it means to share with somebody with, with somebody in something. So a fellowship isn't specifically a Christian term, it's Christian fellowship, but uh, the other day me and Leslie were at a restaurant for lunch and we can't eat the massive foods of plate which they put out in front of you, so we just buy one meal between them, we tell them, cut it down the middle, and they plonked it down in front of us and she was sitting there and we sort of, on the same plate, we shared in something. So we were having the fellowship of sharing in a plate of food. This was bagel fellowship that we were having on that day. Now, you can have Christian fellowship when you share together in something and that something is Christ. That's Christian fellowship. Christians share together with each other in all of Christ's blessings. We don't, it's not as though I have my own little set of blessings which I keep to myself and you have your own set of blessings, but rather all of us as Christians share together in all of Christ's blessings and then therefore as we communicate with each other and we talk about what God is doing in our lives, so we have Christian fellowship because we're sharing together in all of Christ's blessings together. Now the word the, the fellowship, which occurs there, says there's something, there's something specific about it. It wasn't just fellowship. Oh, everybody felt really cool. It was nice. We were having fellowship. But they were sharing in the fellowship, something specific. And I think that this is the money side of things. And I'll try and show that to you as I discuss uh, the life of the early church. It says in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, and if you're following me in your Bible or on your device and so on, your eye runs ahead a couple of verses to verse 44. It says in verse 44, all the believers were together and had everything in common. There's their fellowship idea, the sharing, the unity idea. Verse 45, selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. And there is, there is the fellowship in action if somebody needed something, if somebody was without, they sold up something they had and made sure they were able to share in that way. So we see in these verses the focus on money and material items. If you glance ahead to Acts chapter 4 and verse 32, it's two chapters further on the Bible, but still talking about that same group of 3,000 Christians meeting under the apostles' direction, it says that all the believers, Acts chapter 4 and verse 32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. There's the unity that they had. No one claimed that any of his possessions were his own, but they shared everything they had. And that's, that's, what, that's the quote from the Bible. So the aspect of the fellowship that is prominent is the sharing of their possessions freely with each other. We see this pointed out a couple of times as the narrative goes on. So when you come in the door at church... You say, well, I'm, people might say, well, I'm a member of this church. Look, I walked into the church and wham, they whacked a badge on me and it's got my name on it, so I know I belong here. So that, that's one thing. But another uh, badge that we belong is our financial contribution. So the name tag is one badge, but another badge that people can't see this, but it's still a real badge, is the fact that we're all putting in together into what we could call, using old-fashioned old language, a common purse. It's the bank, in other words, modern language, it's the bank account that we have 
from which we fund all of our activities as a church, we all contribute to that. Some people are able to contribute more because they have more and people are in different situations with their money but we all want to contribute according to what we're able to do so, according to our ability to contribute just as they did in the early church and this is the badge that we belong. It's not a badge that people can see and there might be a time when somebody's in real financial need and they're not able to contribute for a little while for some reason or other and that shouldn't, shouldn't shut them off from coming on to church or fellowship but the badge that we belong, the fellowship, is actually, I, I'm suggesting, uh, the, the, the financial side of things. So uh, what's the point of saying you know, we have great fellowship if we don't put in money and effort and ministry help around here, if we're just kind of coasting along and relying on everyone else to do it all for us and we just sort of think I can reap the benefits without making an effort myself? Later on from this, years later on actually, when a different apostle, Paul, was organising a free will collection of money for the impoverished Christians in Jerusalem, he spoke uh, about the Christians in Macedonia, which is near Greece. So I said, I can tell you about giving money to the poor Christians in Jerusalem. I'll give you the example of the Christians over in Macedonia. Now, over in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 4, and you can look this up in, in your, your devices and your Bibles and so on, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 4, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. It's a bit, bit of a mouthful there, I will admit. I'll read it again. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. Now, just to give you a literal translation here, Uh, they urgently pleaded with us for the grace and the fellowship of this service of the saints. That's that's the literal Greek word-for-word translation. Listen again. They urgently pleaded with us for the grace and the fellowship of this service. The fellowship was we want to give money. We won't be in fellowship with those Christians over in Jerusalem unless we're allowed to kick into the money bag for the money which you're taking over there. Now, so fellowship is actually giving and serving. Before it's a nice feeling and we all feel cool about everybody and we're all having a great time wrapping together, underneath that is the giving and the serving aspect which builds the unity and on which we experience each other's friendship. So the question is, what is fellowship? How can you tell if it's there or not there? And what can you do if it's not there at all? And I say that if people are contributing money, time and effort, then the fellowship fellowship is strong. This is how we share together in the common life of the church. Now, a couple of years ago, it doesn't happen now, but when me and Leslie had a trip overseas and we were in Europe, and we would hear conversations going on around us. Some people would be speaking Italian and French, all this sort of stuff was going on. But then sometimes someone would walk by and they were speaking English, you see, so oh, speaking our own language. And they would have mostly speaking English with an American accent or with an English accent, that kind of thing. But every now and then we'd hear a person speaking English with no accent. And I'd say to Leslie, how, how come that person has no accent? She'd say, oh, duh, Graham. Because they're an Australian, of course. That's why you think they've got no accent. So, Australians. And when we hear English being spoken, 
without any strange accents to it, like the Americans and the English and so on, then we feel at home again. And that's how it is between two Christians. Christians share together in Christ and in everything that Christ gives. So naturally they share together in Christian fellowship between them. So it is great to be a Christian. In our passage in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is poured out by Jesus on every Christian who was there. They all received the Holy Spirit, not just the 12 apostles who spoke in tongues, but the Holy Spirit was being poured about all of them. All have total forgiveness following their repentance. All of this is freely given to them by God. And the fellowship then started showing through because fellowship begins when a person receives the gospel, that is, when he or she receives Christ and all of his benefits. And thus Christian fellowship flourished amongst them. So that's the second point, the fellowship. And then the third thing in our verse, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and says again to the breaking of bread. The word the is in there again. It wasn't just breaking of any old bread, but it's the breaking of bread. So they devoted themselves thirdly to the breaking of bread. Now some Christian teachers think that this is talking about having communion in church, doing the Lord's Supper. And the New Living Translation, which I think was what was being read out of, said that they were sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper. Uh, and so in doing that way, they sort of had a little bit of a, a, a bet each way. Was it the Lord's Supper or was it having a meal? Well, they said, well, they're having meals which included the Lord's Supper. Now, what do we know about meals in those days? Well, in, in the days of Jesus, Jewish meals started off, they probably still start for all I know, but they started off with the host of the meal taking uh, some bread in his hands and he would tear the bread in half, he would break the bread. So the meal starts with the breaking of bread and he would look up to heaven and he'd give thanks to God for all his blessings to them. Then as he broke it, he'd pass it round the table and as it went past you, there might be 10 people at the table or 12 at the table or something, everybody would rip a piece of bread off and eat it and say amen and thus, by doing this sort of symbolic act, everybody shared together in all the blessings that God was pouring out on his people. So that's how Jewish meals started in Jesus' day. It's also likely... I'm pretty much also pretty much certain, I would guess, that at their meal table, teaching happened also, that people talked about God, that they, they went to the, the teaching aspect as well. So uh, on the sheet, I think I've got uh, the preacher thinks or something like words to that effect. The preacher thinks that the breaking of bread means the regular sharing uh, in Christian hospitality around the meal table. That's what I think it means. So rather than running Lord's Supper services and the New Living Translation, so I will have a little punt on that translation. Myself, I think it more sense to see the breaking of bread as the regular sharing in Christian hospitality around the meal table because that's what the apostles did with Jesus. They sat down, uh, he broke bread, and they would talk. He would do the parables. He would do teaching about God. They would discuss the things that they were doing. Why are we going to do some things like that? So it's that sort of context it's that we do the breaking of bread. So in Acts the 3,000, not all together in the hall, you'll be glad to know at once, but they sat down together for their meals. Then they were remembering that the original 12 apostles had shared in daily fellowship. So we're still on the aspect of fellowship here. They'd shared in daily fellowship around the meal table with Jesus, teaching, 
discussing, praying for each other, all this taking place in the context of a regular meal together, not a special Lord's Supper type service. So if we look ahead to verse 46 and verse 47, it says, They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. Probably they sang hymns of praise to God when it says they praised God at their meal table, the Psalms in Jesus' day. And Christian hospitality is still a very powerful instrument to enhance Christian fellowship. Uh, So much so that the Bible writers had to invent new words for Christian fellowship which weren't in existence. They said, well, let's let's get... Just something new was happening. So that in one stage, Christians were called fellow soldiers. This is just one word in Greek, fellow soldiers. And there wasn't that word in Greek before, but now there is. It's in the Bible. Fellow soldiers, that's what we are. Or we're fellow workers or fellow citizens. These are brand new works in the, in the Greek, which Paul made up because he was describing something new. Andronicus and Junius in prison there, fellow prisoners. One word, I'll make a word up. Fellow prisoners, that's who they are. We're Christians together. We're in prison together. We're fellow Christians. This is part of our fellowship together, part of serving Lord Jesus together. And Paul, people have studied Paul's individual words and he appears to be making up new words to describe the new reality. And the new reality is because the Son of God had not come down to earth before and walked around for 33 years. He had not died on the cross for our sins before and raised from the dead before and poured out the Holy Spirit from heaven. Something was completely new that hadn't happened before, so there weren't the words in their language to describe it. So Paul said, well, I'll have to make up new words. Here they are. Sometimes they're translated as two or three words in the English translation, but often it's just the one word in Greek, a brand new word, which Paul made up. New words in the New Testament because of the new reality, and the new reality is one Christian in union with another Christian. Actually, we should go further, we say one Christian, as I speak now, I'm actually in unity with all Christians around the world. We're all in unity together. This is the communion of saints. It's the fact that all Christians share in all of Christ's benefits all together. We receive them all together. We don't get little things on our own, but we receive them all together. Christians are fellow heirs of Christ. This might be on the sheet, I think it is. And fellow members of Christ's body. We're fellow heirs of Christ and fellow members of Christ's body. So there must be interaction between Christians. Church might be loud and lively with a great atmosphere and music really moving along and everyone moving along with it. Or it could be a quieter experience to suit people with a quieter temperament. But we must continue with the apostles' teaching, the prayers returning up to God, the fellowship between Christians uh, going on, or else how can anyone see this anything different between a club and a church? So verse 42 says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers. And I've got down point four on the prayers, but we're coming up to six o'clock and that's probably enough for one sermon. So it's pretty obvious what the prayers were. They were praying to God and they were telling God what they wanted and so I'll I'll omit that bit from my sermon and wind up right there. So thanks very much, Fred, and thanks for listening in.